0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast. Episode number 39, Michael Reisinger, Leveraging Surprise. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Michael Reisinger. Michael is the John J. Gibbons Professor of Law at Seton Hall Law School. Michael teaches evidence and remedies, and has written widely in the area of evidence and proof, including articles on forensics, innocence, and the burden of proof. Our podcast today features Michael's new article, Leveraging Surprise, which is forthcoming in the Seton Hall Law Review. Today's interview, though, departs a bit from our usual format. Over this past weekend, Seton Hall hosted a symposium in honor of Michael's retirement from over four decades of teaching, which is where he presented his new article. So rather than just talk to Michael about his paper, I thought I would have him reflect on some broader themes from his career as well. So for example, I asked Michael to talk about his 1989 article in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review with Mark Denbow and Michael Sachs on handwriting identification and the forensic sciences. I'll also ask him for his thoughts on the progress and future of forensic science and his plans for the future. I hope you'll find this partial retrospective with Michael as entertaining and enjoyable as it was for me to do. Michael, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's begin at the beginning. I think it's fair to say that you are known for many things in evidence law, but one of the things you're well known for is your rather seminal 1989 pen Law piece on handwriting identification. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that project and what took you into the world of handwriting identification?
1: First, I'd like to say that a lot of people claim that that article is about handwriting identification. I've always been of the opinion that the article was about the weaknesses of much of claimed forensic science as it then existed and still does, using handwriting identification as an illustrative tool. I do understand why people say, oh, the handwriting piece, (laughs) but I think it was somewhat broader than that. And I must say right now, I have to give credit to my co-authors, Michael Sachs and Mark Denbo. And as a matter of fact, if it hadn't been for Denbo, my attention would probably have never been drawn to the weaknesses of the products of the forensic identification disciplines. Mark actually had a case, as we all did from time to time. Back then, we tried to keep our hand in litigation. And his case involved a young man who had been hired in a summer program by the Parks Department in New York City. He had some role in dealing with and handing out the checks for the payment of the other Parks Department summer employees, and some of those checks had gone astray and been endorsed, and they claimed that this young man had done it. When they charged him with it, they indicated that handwriting identification expert had identified him as the person who had put the endorsements on the checks. And that struck Mark as being a remarkable claim. And it, it was sort of coincidentally at the same time that we had gotten involved in reexamining the Hopman trial, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping trial, and seeing that there were some claims made about handwriting identification in the transcript of that case that seemed rather questionable. Mark came to me and he said, what's the basis for this claim that they can actually perform this task accurately? And my response was, gee, I don't know. I assume that they can. I assume that they've tested it and found that their performance is accurate. Otherwise, I assume it wouldn't be allowed. And I thought that was going to be the end of it. But it wasn't because he rather stubbornly insisted that he didn't think that was necessarily the case. And it turned out that he was right. It started a lengthy investigation, which I finally ran out of the ability to do myself and thought, I had to bring in, we had to bring in somebody with real expertise in research methodology, and that's when we're put in touch with Michael Sachs, who was then the freshly minted PhD, who was teaching at Boston College. And that began a a relationship which has lasted until now. And, and the first part of that was we did a literature search. We got him in to structure a literature search, which he and I did together, looking for all the empirical literature that had ever been done that, dealt with the issue of whether or not handwriting identification people could accurately do what they claim to do. And it turned out that whether or not they could, there had been no empirical testing of their skills.
0: How surprising was that, that you looked under the hood and found no empirical literature suggesting that they could do what they claimed to do?
1: Shocking, to tell you the truth. Well, obviously, it was shocking to me because my immediate response when Tenbo asked me about it was, well, I assume that that's been done. Of course it has. So, boy, you want to talk about egg on my face after all of the work that went into doing the research. And incidentally, it was kind of interesting because the research was then being done in connection with and in support of the defense of another case. The Sydney Biddle Barrows prosecution, otherwise known as the Mayflower Madam case, in which they were proposing to connect Sydney with the certain records of the escort service that she was charged with running at that time. So the research was all driven by this practical notion that it, if there's no empirical evidence, then it shouldn't be allowed. The result of that was. Actually, in the Barrows case, that faced with what was going to be, I suppose, a serious piece of litigation as a result of that and other factors, Sidney pled to, let us say, a much reduced charge. People sometimes refer to good pleas as a slap on the wrist. Mark Denbo has always referred to Sidney's plea as a kiss on the wrist. So that's how we got started. And at the end of the Barrows case, we said, you know, we got enough stuff here that we ought to put it into a law review article, raise the question of whether or not these forensic identification disciplines were simply being accepted by the legal system with no real empirical basis.
0: And let me say that I agree with your characterization of the paper. The paper was about handwriting, but really it sparked off the revolution, at least in the academic world, of understanding that forensics didn't have the empirical basis that we all thought that it did. I think it's, on the other hand, fair to say that the legal world hasn't moved that much on forensics in the last 25 years, despite the fact that many of us agree with your position. First, let me ask you, do you agree with my characterization on that? And if so, why do you think nothing has changed?
1: Well, I don't quite agree with your characterization. I think that quite a bit has changed. It's like turning a battleship. And the changes that have happened are cultural changes. Cultural changes in forensic science take a long time, just like they do in a lot of other enterprises and cultural changes in the evaluation of forensic disciplines by courts also have taken a long time. So I get your point. There certainly has not been as much progress either in doing the research to provide the validation to these areas as we would have hoped over the course of 25 years, and the response of courts' challenges in these areas has been woeful, as the people who wrote the 2009 NAS report. But they pointed out that the courts had been of not much use in disciplining the forensic disciplines into conducting the required validation research. So I don't know. I do know that there has been a change in attitude among the players in forensics, partially because the older generation has passed on to some extent.
0: For the new generation, what do you think is going to be the most fruitful avenue for them to pursue. As you were talking, you said that it's like turning a battleship. So is the game to keep pounding away, or do you have other ideas for a different tack to take?
1: Oh, I wish I could say I had other ideas, but I don't. There's no option, but keep pounding away. Keep trying to get the leaders of each forensic discipline to understand that the foundational research for that discipline has to be done and that that foundational research has to be done task specifically. It has to be done in regard to each individual recurring task that they testify to in court. They have hoped for years that there would be a magic bullet, a silver bullet that would allow them to do one study, have their discipline perform well on that one study and that that would later rest all possible objections. And I think they're now coming to understand that that hope, which they held out when they decided that they had to do something in the 1990s, is a false hope, that unless they do a lot more foundational research, that the issues won't go away because validity of the assumptions upon which they actually testify in actual cases simply will not have been provided.
0: Now, let me turn away from forensics for a minute and move to the present. Your latest piece, which you wrote for the conference celebrating your career, has, I think, two main aspects. First, broadly stated, I think you argue against the use of quantitative probabilities to model the burden of proof. And then second, you have this really interesting suggestion of using surprise as a way to think about the burden of proof. Let me take those two ideas in turn. So first question is, why do you dislike the use of quantitative probabilistic models?
1: There are a lot of reasons. Obviously, I'm not alone in having some reservations, let us say, about the use of formal probability theory as an appropriate model, either of reason or decision. There's been a lot written on it. And I am merely one of many on that. For myself, I think the worst part of it is that for most. Applications of formal theory to the trial context of formal probability theory, best represented by attempted applications of Bayes' theorem and Bayesian analysis, simply won't work without cardinal numbers. And much of the information that is presented at trial that bears on the factual details of the episode that gave rise to the controversy in front of the court simply is not amenable to generating justifiable cardinal numbers. The response of Bayesians to that is simply, in my opinion, to make the numbers up. Now, they don't make them up by simply drawing them out of a randomly distributed hat of cardinal numbers. They make them up through a process of mental betting exercises. And I don't think that such mental betting exercises actually can generate numbers of sufficient specificity and cardinality for most of what we ask fact finders to do in a litigation, that formal probability theory can be utilized. And I don't think that it therefore provides an appropriate model.
0: So as an alternative, you propose using surprise. Tell us a little bit about how the surprise idea works and what made you think of that as the mechanism to use?
1: Well, it occurred to me, and this was before I knew that other people had played with this also, but it occurred to me, and I guess about seven or eight years ago, it it had niggled at me that there was something going on when I thought about what I believed about the truth or falsity of a proposition. It's, to use in a non-technical terms, it's probability, but not in a formalized probability theory sense. It's likeliness. What I usually ask myself was, well, how surprised would I be if it wasn't true based on what I know? That seemed to me to be a natural question to ask, trying to assess my own degree of belief on the basis of all the information that I'd taken in. I started thinking about this saying, well, surprise is an interesting phenomenon because it's a human universal. It is a fundamental emotion. It is something that people ask understand and can access directly in a way that explanations of formal probability theory simply cannot be accessed and understood by a large percentage of the people. Certainly, in my experience, a a great majority. And therefore, if surprise is actually mapping on to what we think this information really means, maybe we can use it to define how strongly our degrees of belief which are measured by this notion of surprise if the opposite were true, how strongly we want them to be in order to make important decisions. I sort of got this idea in my head and I started researching it and then looking around to see if there had been any other work on it. And it turns out that there has been. And there was a a British, fairly prominent British economist uh, named Shackle, G.L.S. Shackle, who made Surprise a centerpiece of his notions of degrees of belief in economic planning. Now, Shackle's ideas in mind don't map onto each other exactly. I felt, in some sense, emboldened to go forward with the project by virtue of the fact that somebody else had thought the, the notion was foundational enough to do serious work with it. So that's sort of how I came to be where I am now.
0: So finally, let's look a little bit to the future. At the end of this year, after over 45 years in the legal academy, you're planning to retire. What's next for you? Are there still law projects that are on the table or hobbies or interests that have been long neglected or books about surprise as a way of characterizing the burden of proof in your future? What's in store for Michael Reisinger?
1: I don't know. I think nothing much is going to change. I have come to retirement for a variety of reasons. One of them was that, as is hardly any secret, the legal academy in the past five or six years has gone through quite a bit of turmoil as resources dried up, tuition resources dried up for a variety of reasons. I had decided a long time ago that it was appropriate to retire and to free the institution of the burden of one's salary when it was in the best interest of the institution to do so. And under the current circumstances, it just made sense to me to take the rather generous retirement account that had built up over the course of decades and say, well, that retirement account was created not as a means of intergenerational wealth transfer, but so that I could and would retire. So under those circumstances, this seemed like the right time to retire as long as it didn't affect my life too much. Now, when I say didn't affect my life too much, I mean nothing is really going to change for me. I made a deal where I get to keep my office. I get to keep all of my research assistants a part of the travel budget, all my access to databases and computer services. So really, I am morphing into a research professor with the asterisk that says, I'm a research professor. They don't have to pay. But here I am, and I'm not intending to do much of anything differently in the future. So I suppose that means there will be projects of hopefully fruitful projects of an academic sort. I don't exactly know what they'll be, but which of us does?
0: Well, Michael, I want to say that I'm delighted to hear that retirement is not going to change very much. I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts on a remarkable career so far in the world of evidence law. And I certainly look forward to reading more of your work in the future and continue to have your help on various projects.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Although we didn't have time in this special episode to dive into the details of Michael's new article on Surprise, I think it represents a promising and at minimum interesting new avenue for presenting the burden of proof to juries. Probabilities may be second nature to some, but can also be foreign and intimidating to others. Degrees of surprise, whether because surprise is less associated with numbers or because it invokes emotion, degrees of surprise may therefore be a more effective framing device. Ultimately, though, the proof will be in the pudding. Until we get more empirical data on the effects of the surprise framing, Michael's intriguing idea is just that. An intriguing idea. So along these lines, as a sort of next step, my former student Matt Ginther and I recently ran some psychological experiments involving the surprise framework that Michael proposes. The preliminary results are, at least to our minds, pretty interesting. For one thing, despite probably never having been asked about rating anything based on level of surprise before, Subjects seem to give sensible responses that were correlated with the amount of evidence that was presented. So surprise seems to be a viable metric. Moreover, surprise seems to be robust to framing effects. In particular, we get sensible responses whether we frame the question as surprise about guilt or surprise about innocence and this is something that you don't see in the probability realm. Responses about probability of guilt don't always cohere with responses about probability of innocence. In any event, this is all very preliminary, but it's a start. You can read more about it and the other great scholarship done for the Reisinger Symposium when it comes out in the Seton Hall Law Review. Finally, The best news of all is that Michael plans to continue an active research agenda in his retirement. I, for one, am looking forward to seeing where he takes his surprise idea next. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Thanks also to the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, who is hosting my sabbatical this semester, and where portions of this episode were recorded. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.